through 20 through 23. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank thank you you have allowed us to hear it, to receive it, to believe it. Uh, And we um, pray for those around us who have heard it as well and those who haven't, that there would be those who come to hear it and come to know you through it. And we thank you for um, your work in our lives. And we just ask now that as we turn to your word, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so that as we hear it and receive it, that we may walk in a manner worthy of you and fully pleasing to you and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of our God. In, In the name of Christ we ask. Let's stand and read God's Word together. And as we turn to Jude 20, verses 23, I just want to remind us of the context here that the bulk of this letter has been a description and a condemnation of false teachers, as we're well aware. And implicit in that throughout, I think, has been this idea and, and call to divorce ourselves from false teachers and false teaching. And now he turns more explicitly to tell us how we should respond in such a situation. And we ask the question, how can we stand steady in these winds of false doctrine? So let's turn to uh, these verses now and see how Jude and how God would have us to live. He says, but you, beloved, believing yourselves and building yourselves up in your most holy faith, And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. My, my older two kids are to the point where you can kind of understand who they are, what their personalities are, but with Abel sometimes I just pick him up and ask him, who are you? You don't know yet with the baby, right? You don't, you don't know how he's going to turn out. You have some idea. But this whole idea of identity is fascinating to me. Who are you? Who are we? In years past, through casually reading the book of Jude, one, one phrase has always stuck out to me, And that is this one right here, but you. It's a striking statement, but you. There's these categories, Michael's been bringing us through the Psalms wonderfully, and and there's these categories in the Psalms of the righteous and the wicked, or, or maybe better, the blessed man and the wicked. There are those people who continue to live in sin and bearing the fruit of, of, of the curse. And there are those people who abide in the blessing of God and bearing the fruit of righteousness. So in this phrase, but you, that there's this expectation in Jude that, that we will act differently, not because we have a su- superior uh, human nature as Christians. You know, we're not genetically enhanced to, to be better people but because God has fundamentally changed our identity, who we are in Christ. 
It's the same expectation we find in the book of Hebrews in, in chapter 6. And it's after one of the most serious warnings about apostasy in the whole Bible. Um, we find this encouragement from the writer to the Hebrews in, in verse 9 of chapter 6. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So after all these warnings, after all the harsh language, after the painful diagnoses we've labored through in Jude, we come to this really great comfort. But you, beloved. It's as if he's saying, I feel better things concerning you, but it's things of salvation. Which is really pastoral of Jude. After all these warnings, our confidence may begin to waver, and we are assured here that we can, in fact, remain steady. Not by anything in us, but because God has placed His hand of blessing upon us. So, Jude's first command here to the beloved is a call to persevere, to persevere in communion with God and the God of love. He says, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I'm not a big Superman fan. Cohen is wearing a Superman shirt today. But, uh, but I know of, of a character in, in Superman that is named Bizarro. He, he's the exact opposite of Superman. Uh, have you heard of this? Yes. In, in verses 20 and 21, there's this command that's essentially a, di- a direct reversal of what false teachers are. It's, it's as false teachers are bizarro saints. They're, they're the opposite of what we're to be. And so these commands here in this section in verses 20 and 21 are really just a flip of what the false teachers are. So let's begin with his command and then we'll kind of branch out there. So his command is, keep yourself in the love of God. So there's this ever-present theme throughout Jude that, that the false teachers are not steady people. They, they don't remain, they don't abide In Jude uh, verse 6, he says that they're like the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. And in verses, uh, I believe, 19, he says that they're clouds driven by wind and they're wandering stars. So in the false teachers, there's no steadiness. There's no remaining, no abiding. And so here his command to us, but you keep yourselves in the love of God. Remain. Stay steady. He's saying essentially, beloved of God, be the beloved of God. And the beautiful thing here is that God's imperative here to remain in the love of God, to keep yourselves in the love of God, is grounded in the indicative. That is to say, the call to keep ourselves in the love of God is rooted in the pre-existent reality that God has already placed us within his love. Jude began the letter with this, verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept in Jesus Christ. So that it would be an unbearable burden on our souls if, if Jude was to command, win the love of God, earn the love of God, achieve the love of God, maintain the love of God. So when he says, keep the love of God, it's not as though... 
that's a burden that's totally placed on our shoulders. It, it's rooted in a pre-existent reality. This call to keep ourselves in the love of God is a call to to be as we are, to live as we truly have been made in Christ, and to abide, to remain in our present location within the love of God. Now Jude gives us some means by which we're to accomplish this. These uh, participial phrases, I think they're, they're to show us how we're to accomplish this task. So beginning at the beginning of verse 20, he says, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit. Those are the two means by which we keep ourselves in the love of God. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So building ourselves up in our most holy faith. That's again the opposite of false teachers. False teachers did the exact opposite. They tore down. They caused division and strife within the body. And he says in verse 4 that false teachers sneak into the church. I don't know about you, but if you if you wake up in the middle of the night and find someone snuck into your house, uh, would you assume that they snuck in to say put on a fresh coat of paint in your house, maybe you know upgrade your cabinetry? <laughs> no, if you find somebody who snuck into your house, you assume they're there to take from you, to do you damage for their own good. That's what these false teachers have done. And so Jude's call in this book is contend, stand up and fight, root out that crook, that thief. Here in verse 20, he uses a construction metaphor, which is common in Scripture. He says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Um, This word, specifically this word in the Greek, has the connotation of building upon something that's already there, a a foundation. That's the idea of the word. It's building upon a pre-existent foundation. And so the foundation which we are to build is the gospel messages handed down to us by the apostles, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he calls it a most holy faith. It's actually, again, in the, in the Greek, it's the word hagias, but it's a, in a form that's superlative. So that's why he says, it says in English, most holy. This is a very holy thing. It's set apart. Faith, this faith, this particular faith, is of the utmost holiness, utterly set apart, utterly pure. It's like our buildings today. There's some like this that are for common use, and there's some that are sanctified, set apart like a temple for holy use. We see in First Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, it's the same Greek word, as a spiritual house. So the faith that we're called to build ourselves up with is not uh, a common faith, but it is a holy faith set apart for God and for His purposes, and it's built upon a foundation. Paul describes this beautifully in, in 1 Corinthians, and if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 3, 9-15. through 15. concept of building upon a foundation, an objective foundation. 1 Corinthians 3, 9-15 through 15, 
he's describing really here Christian ministry. He says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that verse again. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The the prevailing wind of doctrine today is the notion that we build our own foundation. Or if we build upon the foundation of Christ, we can be carelessly building upon it with whatever materials we wish. But we have for us laid a foundation designed for the grandest of temples, and, and really we would probably rather build a straw bale house on it. Some of you may have seen this week the, the Babylon Bee, the Christian satire site, and, and there was one in, uh, a, a article entitled, Out of Ideas to Keep Church Relevant, Pastor re- Resigns Himself to Just Preaching the Gospel. <laughs> <laughs> but satire can strike at the root of things really well, can it? And we have really so many creative ideas to strengthen the church. You know, five revolutionary principles to revitalize your marriage. Or doing life together. Re- revitalizing relationships. Some of these things can be useful supplements. Um, some are even vital supplements. Like we have gone through this book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Ha- hospitality and building relationships are essential supplements to the gospel. And here we've changed our seating arrangements. We have coffee and cookies and I've seen our Fellowship develop better, I think, as a result. This is good. This is wonderful. This is helpful. But these are not the means to make us a strong, mature body or to be able to stand firm against the winds of doctrine. They are not the things by which we build ourselves up on our most holy foundation. Of first importance in that effect is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and was raised again according to the scriptures. That's the heart of the matter. And, and when we begin to stray outside the lines of the apostolic gospel, we begin to stray outside the love of God, off of that foundation which is Christ. The saving love of God is gospel love, and it's the gospel which is the power of God for salvation. So the first means to keeping ourselves in the love of God is to persevere in gospel truth, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. The second means that Jude offers here for us to persevere in keeping ourselves in the love of God is prayer. 
Fancy, isn't it? Faith and prayer. Praying in the Holy Spirit, he says. The false teachers are said to be, in verse 19, devoid of the Spirit. Again, bizarro saints. They're devoid of the Spirit. We are to pray in the Spirit. Once again, Jude assumes the indicative that the true believer has the Spirit by which he comes before the throne of grace. When the, when the believer avails himself of this privilege, God can work powerful things. Prayer played an integral role in establishing and maturing and protecting the church in the first century. In Colossians, it's just one of many examples. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who was apparently the pastor of Colossae and was at this time with Paul in Rome, Paul reports, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I wonder if we struggle in our prayers that our brothers and sisters would stand mature. This is convicting to me. It's a reality is that we bemoan the state of the church in this valley and in this nation. Our concerns are legitimate. We see people and churches and leaders straying from the faith once for all delivered. But I wonder how much time do we spend on our knees struggling in prayer for the saints and for the church in this valley and the church in the nation. And I have to confess, I think I spend more time complaining than praying. Do we struggle in prayer that our own congregation would stand mature in the onslaught of false doctrine? You know, just because we seem healthy now and we're, we're reformed doesn't mean we're exempt from all these dangers. I'm not exempt from straying into false teaching. We all long for a revival. We long for a revival in this area and we know we can't produce the revival ourselves. We can't manufacture a revival. We can't have a revival. But I wonder, do we pray for it? If we suppose that revival will come in the absence of prayer, we're deluding ourselves. Prayer is described here as a means by which the church keeps herself in the love of God. It's a powerful statement. It's interesting. We know we all know the armor of God. You know, it's given to us to protect us and, and to give us an opportunity to be on the offensive against the enemy. But Paul concludes the armor of God with this this section that I always forget. In um, Ephesians six eighteen through twenty, he concludes it by saying, "Praying at all times in the Spirit, and with all prayer and supplication." To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I, I read scripture, I look up to Paul, I, I would think, <laughs> myself I would just think, Paul's got it, right? He, he can handle it. But he desires, he needs the prayers of the saints to accomplish this work that he's been given. At times we don't know how to pray. And part of what it means to pray in the Spirit is to pray 
as a regenerate person, a, a person indwelt by the Holy Spirit, relying on that promise that we have in Romans that he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we're, when we're regenerated by the Spirit, we are reunited to Christ by faith. We all know the promise well, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By Jesus, but but Jesus has a a, a um, conditional phrase before that, and, and Sinclair Ferguson actually helped me to see that this week. He says, "If you abide in me, and my words abide in, abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you." Yes. So, as spirit indwelt people, we abide in Christ, and in fact, His very Word abides in us. So, the prayers which are produced as a result are the words of Christ. Which means that more and more as we grow up into Christ, the words of Christ fill us up to overflowing so that the very words of our prayers proceed from hearts and minds consumed with the word of Christ. So I want to encourage you that if, if we don't know what to pray, we can pray scripture. The prayers of Paul are incredible. The prayers of the Psalms are incredible. Just listen to this example from Ephesians one fifteen through 19. Paul prays for the Ephesians, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? <laughs> That's a remarkable prayer. I don't care if your prayer is, life is better than George Mueller himself. You can't beat the prayers of Scripture. So I want to urge us that we be a people who labor and struggle in prayer. And that we and those who confess Christ in this valley may persevere in the love of God. So make time to pray to that end and make corporate prayer a priority. Uh, Michael and I try to pray at 845 and fail often because I'm a slacker in getting here. And quite honestly, it, it's easier to just chat, sit down and pray. Sometimes we fail at it, but we try to meet at 845 and I encourage you to join us. I know preaching on prayer has the effect of making us feel guilty. And, and, and I include myself in that. And I don't desire to guilt trip anyone. But I don't want to be bashful about the fact that the reason we feel convicted about sin when we talk about prayer is that prayerlessness is a sin. And like any other sin, the proper response is not to ignore it, but repentance and turning to the cross for forgiveness, and learning to walk more and more in the newness of life and in the Spirit. So, keeping ourselves in the love of God, then, is, is really quite simple, and it's really quite hard. Because the simplicity of it is, it's just the word in prayer. The difficulty of it is learning to submit daily to the word of truth, and believe the gospel, and humbling ourselves to bend the knee in prayer. 
And our confidence in all this is the indicative, is that we are the beloved of God, we have the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and we are indeed indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So these are things we can do, if imperfectly. And in verse 21, he speaks to um, the orientation of our hope as we live these things out. He says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And really, it could be legitimately translated while waiting or as you wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. These are things we do as we wait. All of this is done in a state of existence called the already, not yet. In glory, there will be no danger of us straying from the love of God. In glory, it won't be a a struggle to commune with God. And our faith then will be sight, and sin which afflicts us now will be no more. But while we wait for that day of eternal life, we, we need to be striving to keep ourselves in the love of God. Unlike the false teachers who only live in the present to satisfy their heart's desire at the moment. This is an attitude we have to have if we're to stand firm in the winds of false doctrine because it's going to be unpleasant as we go through this time of waiting of the already not yet. If we don't have our hopes set upward, then we're going to fail. We're going to give up because we don't have anything to live for. Now all of this that I've described so far from Jude is really a corporate affair. We don't build ourselves up alone, right? We don't pray alone or only for ourselves. It's a united effort which becomes more explicit here in verses 22 and 23. It says in 22 and 23, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So you can see there, there's a, there's a role we all play in each other's lives as we seek to deal with false teaching in our midst. And Jude here answers a really important practical question for us. Um, in church history, there's this controversy of the lapsed. I'm sure you've heard of it. And so, in, in the controversy of the lapsed, there were these uh, the, the Christians were under threat. They were told, you have to go to the temples to worship these Roman gods. And you have to carry a, a card or something with you to prove that you've been there. And so some people um, had cards forged, other people lied, some were uh, weakened or broken under the threat of torture, and others stood strong. So the question was, when all this was over and people were coming back to the church and there's this lapsed person, how do you deal with them? In the same way, we could look at the carnage of false teaching around us and we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with these people who have capitulated or begin to fail and fall for these false teachings? How do we handle these people? And Jude's answer really here is brilliant. Um, It doesn't give us an easy out. It remains a, a difficult question. But his answer really is, different circumstances require different approaches. He has three different approaches here. He says, some have begun to doubt the truth, and they're a little shaky, they're a little unsure. So what do we do with a person like that? Do we lower the boom on them, excommunicate them, cast them into eternal flames because they've doubted? He says, 
have mercy. Mercy is kindness or compassion on someone who doesn't deserve it, someone who's offended and deserves punishment. And doubt is a manifestation of the sin of unbelief, but if we're to communicate, excommunicate every soul for every little doubt, we wouldn't have a church. So he says, have mercy. This mercy is a kindness that on the one hand seeks to bring the doubter back into the fold. It would not be mercy to just let him go off on his own trajectory. That would be cruelty. But on the other hand, this mercy is patient in answering objections, in giving a person time to work through issues, and in relying on the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does in a person's heart. Second uh, way of dealing with this people, these people that he describes is that we are to um, snatch them out of the fire. Or actually he says save them by snatching them out of the fire. But this whole notion of saving them is not that we save them by our own actions, but that we're a means that God uses to present the word of Christ to bring his lambs back into the fold. Some people just just need to be grabbed by the collar and shaken awake. Calvin says it this way. He says, when there's danger of fire, we hesitate not to snatch away violently whom we desire to save. For it would not be enough to beckon with the finger or kindly to stretch forth the hand. So also the salvation of some ought to be cared for because they will not come to God except when rudely drawn. (laughs) I've been listening to Walter Martin some lately. And he's not really known for his diplomacy when dealing with the cults. Um, but I heard him say something along these lines. He said, I don't know how many people have come up to me after a talk or something and told me that they were saved out of the cult because of some mean thing I said. So, some people need that thick black cowboy coffee to wake them up in the morning, right? And the imagery here is is almost reactionary. It's almost as if like a child was tripping by the campfire and all the adults lunge at the same time. At that point, you're, you're not thinking about, well, I might get burned or I might knock the child down and they might get some bruises. You're just trying to save them from the flames. A bruise or two means nothing compared to the flames of a fire. So if we actually really care about the souls of people, there will be times when we will almost instinctively and with more force than we might normally use have to yank our friends and even fellow church members from the flames. Third category here is, he says, to others we show mercy, but we have to beware of the contagion that's on them. He says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's almost kind of to me like a nurse caring for a sick person. She's dealing with sickness all the time. She's not exempt from the plague herself. Some people need mercy, even as the doubters, but are in some sense more contagious than others. They require the same patient, gentle pushes back into their orbit around the sun, but something about them, and maybe it's their particular doctrines or their personality or something, is more captivating, and it's more contagious, and it requires an extra level of caution. So Jude encourages here healthy fear and hate, of the garment stained by the flesh. We know that the false teachers in Jude's day seem to be promoting a, some kind of sexual 
sin or liberty. And we've discussed before that in our day, such teachers should be rejected outright. But there may be those people who have maybe sat under their teaching for a long time who are just coming out of worldliness. They, they require more gentleness than perhaps that false teacher would. But we must be extremely cautious in this situation because um, in our attempts to be patient and gracious and merciful, we don't want to slip into a kind of, oh, it's no big deal kind of mentality. Because when it becomes a no big deal, then it will be a no big deal when I want to dabble in the same thing. We must approach those situations with caution, appropriate fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Paul's really clear in, in um, Galatians 6, 1, on the same exact point. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So to stand firm, we need each other. The, the, the Christian life can't be lived in isolation. There is no such thing as a maverick Christian. So as we wrap up here, the, the, the question that I think Jude is answering is, how shall we stand firm in the winds of false teaching? And it's really, to me, summed up in the first three words of verse 20. But you, beloved. There are dangers all around, but you are of a different stock by God's grace. And you are the beloved. You're the beloved of God. And you are His children, His people, and you are of the community of the Beloved. So I pray that we may, as a church, may abide in and live in light of our identity of being the Beloved and building ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and in encouraging and admonishing one another as we await that glorious day of mercy when Christ brings us our eternal life in His presence. Amen. Amen.